while the, everything's getting ready, there we go. <clears throat> it's my honor to share with you from the Word of God. And today we're covering 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 11. Next week we'll cover uh, 12 through, I believe, 15, where there's individual ways people build on the one foundation. And some of those aren't so good, but yet uh, God will be the judge in the final day. So today, our text, let me start this, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 11. Let's pray, and we'll read the overview of the text and cover uh, the whole sermon from this text. Thank you, dear Lord, for your kindness and your goodness, for giving us the privilege of seeing what you've done through your son, Jesus Christ. And may we have grace to listen, to hear, to believe. And may our minds be renewed. And if there are any here who do not know you, may today be the day of salvation for them. And we do this knowing this special privilege that we could share from your word. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing I want to do here is read the overview of the text, and the clear teaching is that there's one foundation of what's being built, which is the church, and not the local church, but the church grounded on Jesus Christ, and that is him as the foundation. So let me read that. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 11. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, while we're still on this overview, I want to show you what the context is if you weren't here before. In Corinth, there were schisms and divisions and claims that some were followers of Apollos or maybe Paul or Peter. And early on, Paul writes saying, what is Christ divided? And this is the basis for Paul laying out what is the wisdom of God, what is the power of God, what is the message of the gospel, and what is the one foundation. And today, we're going to cover just the two verses so that we can put this in context and look forward to what will be taught next week. So to give you a little bit of context, I'll just read verses 8 and 9, which I preached on a few weeks ago. 1 Corinthians 3, 8 and 9. He who plants and he who waters are one, And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So as we saw before, there are three analogies here. At least there are going to be more. First of all, we have God's field. Covered that already. God's building. That's what we're working on now. And then he's going to go one more step to talk about God's temple the very dwelling place of God. So in that context, we'll continue to teach through these passages carefully 
because, frankly, getting this wrong is the story of church history throughout the centuries. Not only were there problems while the apostles were still alive, it's only gotten worse. And our goal is to understand that the church is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And if we get that wrong, then we are not fully pleasing to the Lord as we build on that foundation. So let's look at the very first part, 1 Corinthians 3.10, where Paul says this, according to the grace of God given to me. Now, Paul, as we saw in Acts, was the one who preached the gospel in Corinth. A church is founded there. Others were there. And now he's heard from Chloe's people, saw that in chapter 1, that there are schisms and divisions. So already there's a problem. Now, let's look at some of these words here, grace of God given. These words are important. The word grace, charis, and the other word given is a a verb given by God. So grace given is almost a redundancy because grace itself is a gift. And what we're going to continue to emphasize is this. God has so designed the gospel that it offends everybody. Oh, yes. We've seen that. It's foolishness to the Greeks, a scandal to the Jews, but to those who believe it's the power of God. We'll see that. And church history is filled with attempts to change that so that various religious kingdoms can be built in the name of Christ. And he did not ordain that we build kingdoms in his name that are grounded on other things than the personal work of Christ and the gospel. So we saw in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 1 that they had schisms and strife, schisms and strife. And why? Why did that happen? Because they wanted to de-emphasize the uniqueness of the gospel, the person of Christ, Messianic salvation, redemption, atonement, forgiveness of sins, and instead focus on the personality of the preacher. And there may have been various ways that happened. We know later in Second Corinthians they said about Paul that he was unimpressive in his personal appearance. And we know from elsewhere that Apollos was eloquent and so on. And this is something that Paul saw as fatal if it goes too far. And it has to be stopped right here. There's only one foundation, and that is Jesus Christ. Now, this grace given is reminding us that no one is a Christian because we have something to offer to God that others did not. We are saved by grace alone. Grace alone, by faith alone, is taught in Scripture alone, and through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. 
schisms and strife show that it's very easy for us to start thinking that I have something to contribute that all the others do not, and therefore I must be very important. But that's not the point. God uses people according to his purpose. So we saw earlier in 1 Corinthians 1, 4, I'll cite some scriptures. Paul said, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. And it says in verse 7, so that you're not lacking any gift, charisma or charismata, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what we know is that those who have believed the gospel, those who are redeemed, those who are built on the foundation, Jesus Christ, have been given grace, are not lacking gifts, and that we need one another. This will be a theme throughout 1 Corinthians. And so what is the point of the divisions and quarrels? Because these things, though common, and they happened in the Gospels, they happened in Acts, it's always harmful. And what's harmful is the fact that looking at things that way are, and I have a word, belie, belie grace given. I want to make a statement about that. Belie, belie by, by the way, means gives a false impression. Gives a false impression or calls it into question. Yes, I'm saved by grace, but isn't it great that I showed up? Doesn't work that way. Let me make a statement. If whatever we have is a gift of grace to be in the church and to serve as enabled by God, then why debate who's the greatest? Now, that doesn't mean we don't debate false doctrine and expose it and show up for what it is. And we don't get together and search the scriptures like the Bereans. But it does mean that we're not even capable of looking around and determining who's better at doing their gift than somebody else. And we'll see that as we go through. And so the word given there in the tense, having been given, means that this has already happened. Those who believe have grace. And Paul mentions that later about himself in chapter 15, where he said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And then he says in verse 10, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored more than them all. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Notice Paul says, grace doesn't mean, well, I guess I'm done now. I've received grace. Time to take ease and forget about it. No, grace is a gift and we serve. But in the end, he says, but not I, but the grace of God. The grace of God motivates those who are born of God to love, to serve, to care, to give, and to be part of the body of Christ because that's what God's put us into. Now, let's go a little further into this and see about the building and the foundation. This is a metaphor or an analogy. Paul here is talking about the church in Corinth and what 
happened through him in Corinth, and then this gives us something to think about for every one of us. Like a skilled master builder, Paul says, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. So having gone from Corinth to somewhere else, there's a church, people are serving, things are happening. And this is an analogy that we looked at earlier, introduced in verse 9. The word for skilled there is sophos, which means wise or wisdom. That, I believe, is chosen because it suits the context. The wisdom of God is not the same in any sense as the wisdom of the world. Man's wisdom is not God's wisdom. The world's wisdom is not God's wisdom. So the wise master builder, interesting word there, is where we get our word architect. Archie meaning uh, rank or degree, and technon, a builder or worker. So this would be a master workman building on a foundation. And so others will come along and the church is still being built. So let's look at a few verses about wise, uh, some reviews and previews. The best way to learn is to compare Scripture with Scripture and see where we've been and where we're going. So if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians one we we'll have a review of what was preached earlier on this section. 1 Corinthians one twenty seven. Notice what it says, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. Remember that the first century culture was a shame-honor culture, and shame was to be avoided and honor to be gained at all costs. And that was the foolishness in the eyes of the Greeks and the scandal in the eyes of the Jews because why would God send his son, God the Son, second person of the Trinity, to be mocked, ridiculed, and hated and shamed in a world where that means failure and rejection? Because God has chosen to use the things that are not to shame the things that are. So God's wisdom is Christ crucified. Now, a preview, if you want to look to where in some weeks as we go forward, I'll be preaching on 1 Corinthians 3, 18 through 20. This is a preview. Let no man deceive himself of any man among you, thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so they may become wise. For the wisdom of the world, of this world, is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. Now this cuts to the heart of what is wrong with popular Christianized religion. 
much of Christendom is grounded in the wisdom of the world. And that's clear from the fruit, from the messages, from the outcome, from the teachings, and from what we've observed throughout history. Grand, glorious buildings, many uh, other foundations than Jesus Christ, ranks of honor and status that are unknown in the Bible, all the way from bishops, archbishops, uh, so forth, cardinals, every group in church history seems to have a way of finding some things that would look very impressive to the world. And sadly, the hardest thing to do for us, but we must do it, is to not let that determine what we can learn from the Bible. As Eric said in Sunday school, the author determines the meaning. And God chose in his purposes to use his son, Jesus, to be crucified and treated shamefully in order to shame the wise. But everything God's ever done, someone will figure out how to make it worldly and attractive to the world as it is, as Eric was talking about in Sunday school. We prefer that there's no future judgment. I've had people tell me that when I researched. No, we, 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 we don't like a Christianity that says that God's going to bring judgment. Well, God didn't ask us what we like. He told us what he's going to do. And we need to be able to see what God said. In 1 Corinthians 2.2, Paul said this, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That doesn't mean Paul didn't have the full understanding of the new covenant and the Old Testament scriptures and the applications, but that when you preach, you can't do a survey of the world to find out what they want to hear and make sure they hear it and hopefully somehow Christianity will rub off. Christianity doesn't rub off, it doesn't inspire, it offends, or it converts. To those who are converted by God's grace, they are hungry for the word of God. And they love the truth. Not because not any of us are better than anyone else, it's the way things are. Those who are born of God are always hungry for the truth. And what a shame that people that are new Christians end up in church and they're being taught worldly wisdom rather than the power of God through his own word. Now, another thing that I want to continue to address is the danger of an anti-scholastic bias that comes into evangelicalism. What do I mean by that? Well, if you were in Sunday school, you saw how Eric showed that the philosophies of the world are antithetical to the Bible. But some, therefore, think, well, 
don't get educated, you might become liberal or wrong. But as a matter of fact, Saul of Tarsus was a brilliant scholar in his own right, but he was hostile to God until he's converted. And we need to study to, so that those who are preaching and teaching are approved, understanding what the text means, not necessarily by degrees, but by having a, a very strong desire to know what did God say. Knowing what God said is not going to harm you. And interestingly, some scholars now have realized that. What does it say that's better? Here's Dr. Thistleton and his commentary on 1 Corinthians 2, 2. And I'm going to quote him. And he mentions the context here. This foundational work of Paul is explicated in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, where the content of foundational proclamation is the apostolic message of a Christ crucified, says Thistleton, without the addition of various human opinions and evaluations. He goes on, it's Christological and Christocentric, meaning was teaching about the doctrine of Christ and is based, centered on Christ, back to what he said. It's Christocentric character is what makes it the solid foundation without which the building would not stand and certainly would not stand as that building. What is being built? Is the church a grand cathedral architecturally so that people would want to go? No, the church is not a literal building. It's the building of God built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Within Christian liberty, Christians meet a lot of different places. They have a building, may not have a building. Some cases, there's nice buildings that work nicely. Other places, people meet here or there. The real building is the one God is building on the foundation of Jesus Christ. We have liberty as to where and when we meet. And that's very confusing to people who haven't heard the gospel. Because as you drive down the various streets of cities, you see churches. One time I took a picture of one not far from here, and on the front of the church lawn was a great big sign that says, We are the world. And I thought, okay, whoever thought that was a good sign must not have read First um, John. We're not of the world. So what's the foundation? Let's continue as we study the word. 1 Corinthians 3.10c. This is a very important passage, and I'm going to emphasize it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. And I put this on the slide because in the Greek, Take care is imperative, and it's the key idea here. Next week, I'll cover why we have to take care, but that's what it says. Take care how he builds upon it. Now, why is he telling us this? Because of divisions and schisms that he heard 
from Chloe's people were happening in Corinth. And if we have the fear of God about what and who the foundation is and believe that with fear and trembling, then of course we'll take care. Of course we'll take care. And we'll reinforce this next week when we look through some of these passages about future judgment. The word for take care could be translated see to it. Blepo is the Greek, uh, but it's in the present active imperative. Anyone building has to take care. Each one is another word that we've looked at. Hikostos, and it applies to individuals. This is very important. Individuals matter to God. And there's not this general amorphous idea that sort of we're all God's children in a very general sense. That must be the church. That's how the world sees it. And so some have taken that and come up with what they call new perspectives on Paul. If you're in the right group, we don't really want to be too focused on the individual. But when people repent and believe the gospel, they're persons who do so. When people are redeemed by the blood of the lamb, it's persons. Yes, we're part of a group, the people who are redeemed gather together and know him and trust him. But this idea of erasing the boundaries and making this amorphous thing that might be universal or more universal is not the point. And now we're talking about people in ministry building on the foundation. Every single one who believes and teaches the word of God and serves needs to take care because it matters. Eschatology matters. Details matter. What God said matters. And that should inform how we study, how we think about what does God say here and how will that change me if I believe it. So persons matter. We'll see this as we go forward. Next week, I'll get into more detail about that. Now, in this case, it's speaking about leaders, and it's attacking this idea, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, I'm of Christ, which was the problem addressed at the beginning of the epistle. So the, here's the general problem. Most people think I'm in a group under the banner Christian. That's all I need to know. And that is uh, very common, very common. Let me cite another scholar, Dr. Gardner, uh, says this. To summarize then, Paul is saying that in line with the prophecies, God's own foundation of his son, Jesus Christ, has indeed been laid. They do believe in him, says Gardner, and so are a holy place, God's temple. That's another analogy coming up. A point to which he is building in 316. says, Paul has laid the right foundation in the right way. It is now vital 
that is built upon in such a way that leaders do not later introduce a new stumbling block. Therein is the key issue. There's enough offense already in Christ crucified. And this is an offense. It's foolishness of the Greeks, a scandal of the Jews, but to those who believe it's the power of God, it's salvation. We don't need to add new offenses. And we do not need to include those who refuse to believe that or exclude people who do based on some other thing. It's enough of an offense. Um, here's a preview of one of next week's verses, 1 Corinthians three thirteen. Each one's work will become manifest. For the day, which is that future judgment, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. I'll cover that next week. Verse 13. And this is so difficult. This is the thing that causes us to stumble. This is the thing that if you don't really believe that the Bible is the word of God and that this is really what is going to happen, and here it's not talking about salvation or damnation. That's also involved. But here, as we see next week, some will build, they believe in the right thing, but they got a wrong wood, hay, stubble. They're still saved, but as by fire. The only way we can build that would be pleasing to the Lord is to believe that he is who he claims to be and that we're pleasing him and that pleasing God may not cause us to be popular with the world or amongst our peers or in our denomination. I was taught that, by the way, by some dear brothers in Bible college. I found the folder with some of the old papers I had. And to my shame, I didn't listen as well as I should have, but it's never too late to get back on the right track. I remember one teacher said this. When you preach on a passage, there are people out there way more educated, know the languages, and so on. But let's say one of those persons who really can look at the passage and understand it happens to be in the congregation where you're preaching that day, visiting. That day, he said, by the way, this was in the Assemblies of God in the early 70s, you study enough that you know that passage as well as anybody that might show up. doesn't mean you're the best scholar or the best preacher, but at least do the work so that that day you know what that says and God will use that. And I'm a slow learner. It took decades to decide, well, maybe I better do it that way. Because what seems appealing is the external, the, the hype, the excitement, the, all the things that are happening and moving and shaking, the latest thing. And that attracted me. Because grinding out the meaning of the text by careful study doesn't appeal to a lot of people, but it will be the power of God that will change us. What's more powerful than what God said? 
what's more powerful than the meaning of the text that's inspired by the Holy Spirit? And I still get the emails from some of the groups out there, the, the, the would-be great men of God, and they have everything else in mind. The secret place, the latter reign, the new apostles, the new move of God, visiting heaven, having intimacy uh, in things that are not even discussed in Scripture. So this is serious and it's important. And I think that this is the foundation that we know God will use. Let's go to verse 11. And this, I believe, is very amazing when you look at it in the original, in the Greek. The word can, by the way, is dunamai. So let's see what that means. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, why would Paul write that no one has the power to lay a different foundation? Because church history, as externally known, just studying what's called Christianity or Christendom, has certainly laid many, many different foundations. In fact, there are cults who would say they're Christian, but have a different Jesus. Did you know that? There are cults that say Jesus was a created being. That's the Jehovah's Witnesses. There are cults like the Mormons who say Jesus is a half-brother of Satan. Now, there are large groups of people who believe that that's church and that that's Christian, but it's not the true foundation. What Paul is saying is that the only foundation that's going to stand in the day, that is the eschatological day of judgment, is the one that's laid. And the more firmly we're grounded on that foundation, and the more the word of God is clearly taught, it's better because the gold, silver, precious stones will withstand the fire. What is stubble, we'll see next week, burns up. Now there are those who do have the right Christ and the right foundation, but so much of it is compromised. I spent part of my life doing that early on, not taking seriously the tools that had been given, and I regret that very much, but God has allowed me to be able to do this now to look carefully into the word and share with you. Does it matter? Let me give an example. Does it matter? We were doing a podcast not too long ago. In fact, the last one I think we recorded. And we were finishing a book, Critical Issues Commentary. We have a podcast that also goes on YouTube. We're finishing a book on prayer. I think we were covering the, someone wrote a book about Elisha's axe head floated. And the point was, 
have you lost your cutting edge? Oh, you missed that one? Well, now, just think about this. I'm not, we're not judging whether the author knows Christ or not. That God knows that. But is the point of Elisha's axe had floated, well, I lost my cutting edge, so it must be an attack from Satan. No. And it reminded me of something that happened many years ago uh, in, when the purpose-driven movement was the most prominent thing that was happening in churches. And I found out about that when someone I, I knew as a young man came and said, you know, I'm in a Bible study, and we're going through this book called The Purpose Driven Life, and I don't think this is right. And he came over with it, and I started looking at it. I, what? 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 This, 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 is, well, this is what everybody's studying. So I said, I'll have to check, out, check that out. And at the end of the podcast the other day, which is not a live one, so it hasn't been edited yet, I pulled out just one thing that I wrote about that because in Genesis 6, verse 8, there's a passage that says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, or he was received grace from God. God gave grace to Noah. Now, in the purpose-driven version, it says, with some really weak translation, Noah made God smile. Now, let me apply that right here. I think it helps us put this into clear perspective. Think about this clearly. What is a more powerful statement about God's saving mercy in the midst of judgment? Noah made God smile or Noah found grace or favor in the eyes of the Lord. Though the whole world in its rebellion and its wickedness was coming into judgment, God chose Noah. He found favor and he preserved human life miraculously in the midst of judgment. And why would anyone think, well, God, let's say it this way because it doesn't offend people. And ironically, when we were able to talk to the author about these sort of things, they never ever said, well, our translation is right and you're wrong. They don't even, they ignore it. So here is the warning. Take care how you build. And if you don't believe Genesis 6, 8 is best translated, Noah made God smile. And you put that in your book anyhow, because that way the world will like it and maybe you can have a peace plan. Then don't do it. I want to know what God said. I don't want to know something that God didn't say that misleads me and confuses me. And this is just ubiquitous in church history. Can we find out what God said? Yes or no? And if we can, why can't we preach that? Why can't we preach preach Christ crucified? God's grace, God's mercy, God's wrath against sin, 
God preserving Noah. And everything that's true is far more powerful. It's the only thing that will change lives. And why must we try to make the world happy with us? Frankly, that is not building with gold, silver, precious stones. So we can make Christianity appear popular to a lot of people, but that popularity doesn't save. But God saves by grace through faith. A different Jesus. Now, some people have the right Jesus because when you inquire privately, do you believe, and then you go through the proper doctrine of Christ, some who are building will say, yes, we believe that. So why don't you preach it? Well, that's, not, that's a good question. Why don't, why don't we just preach what it says? Should I think that what it doesn't say is going to be more effective than what it does say? If I thought that, then I'm saying I don't really believe that the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible, and as Eric was teaching in Sunday school, that the author determines the meaning, that God has spoken, and that nothing is more powerful than what God did say when we believe it. And it'll convict us. And there's nothing saying that if you don't want to serve God, that you're better off having a religious veneer and acting like you're a Christian in some weird way than actually believing the truth and serving God by grace. Now, to that end, we have just two more uh, slides after the application slide here. Those who are offended by Christ crucified have the wrong foundation. Number two, believers are saved through the true foundation, Jesus Christ. You know, this should be so obvious that you wouldn't even have to preach on it. But we do. We do. Because it's not that obvious in the bigger world of Christendom. Let's go to 1 Peter 2, 6 through 8. Now, here some of the same terms are used um, that are used in 1 Corinthians. 1 Peter 2, 6 through 8. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, notice this next Old Testament citation, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Stumbling is... a Proscoma offense is scandal on where we get our word scandal. Now, if you want to win friends and influence people, and you want to be popular in the world, you don't want to scandalize people because that just won't do it. So God has chosen 
what is scandalous and offensive to be the means of salvation. Let me cite a couple of the Old Testament verses. Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes that it will not be disturbed. Cited here as being messianic. Messianic is about Jesus Christ. It says in Psalm 118, 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Who is that? What, what stone was rejected? Jesus Christ. Cited in the New Testament. How about Isaiah 8, 14? Then he shall become a sanctuary, but to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, why was Jesus rejected? In Luke, from Luke 9:51 all the way to the entry into Jerusalem, there's a mission where Jesus is going to be rejected. He's rejected by the people in his hometown. He's rejected by the Samaritan. He's rejected by Jerusalem. What does that word reject mean? Let me read this right here. Apotokimadzo. Aren't you glad you came to church to hear about that word? I hope you are. It's a cool word. Now, what's dokimadzo? Dokimadzo is to put something to the test. Let's say right now gold's worth quite a bit of money. So you have some gold, and you want to go sell it to someone who buys gold. They're not going to just trust you about how pure it is, what it is. They're going to put it, they want to know what it is, what what cared, what kind of gold is this? How is this? Is it the real thing? Is it fool's gold? So apo is an intensive, and so what this word apo tokimazo means, to reject as the result of examination and testing of one's qualification for an office. Think about that. The people to whom the promises were given, who had the scriptures, who had the teachers, who had the promises, and yet there's still future promises for national ethnic Israel, because it says that in Acts 1, but it's yet future, who had the means to test, and they looked at him, and they rejected him. Why would you look at Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who's done all these things, and say, you know what? We don't think it's you. And so the critics use that against Jesus. They say, well, if you're rejected by your own people, they have the scriptures, they have the scribes, they have the scholars, and they looked at him and they rejected him. Why should we believe this? Because this predicted in Scripture in Psalm 118, 22, 
and elsewhere, that Messiah would be rejected by his own people. So the fact is, did Jesus Christ demonstrate that he is who he claims to be? And we've said for decades, he did. Only Jesus Christ predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection, and he carried it off. Jesus Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust in order to bring us to God. He overcame the tomb. He rose on the third day. He predicted, by the way, in Luke Acts, when they were on the Mount of Transfiguration, he's talking about his exodus. On, on Literally in the Greek, they were talking about his exodus. With uh, Eric was talking about that, Moses and Elijah. And he ascended all the way into heaven. He's coming again. So if we want to be examined by the world and seen to be lacking any religious qualifications, then we need to build on the rock. They rejected him. They'll reject us unless they're converted. That's the way I was. I was rejecting biblical Christianity. I rejected a church. I rejected religion. And despite the evidence from organic chemistry that God created the world out of nothing, I became as blasphemous as any sinner when I was a junior at Iowa State University. But when I was converted in, on July 18, 1971, that all changed because I knew by the conviction of the Holy Spirit that if I rejected Christ and refused to serve him and believe the truth, I was lost and I would be damned. I knew that. I knew in a nanosecond what I rejected right up to that time. What about you? Maybe you're a critic. Maybe you're hearing this right now. And you're a critic and you think, why be religious? Why believe that there's a coming judgment? Why trust Christ? What kind of God would hold people in account for their own sin? Well, the God who promised future judgment and the way of escape is only through Jesus Christ. One more slide. And we'll see this very clearly by going back to the Earlier teaching in 1 Corinthians 1, 21 through 23. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Let's stop right there. In the wisdom of God, look at the irony. In God's wisdom, the rebellious world didn't know God through wisdom. The Jews are scandalized, and the world is looking at this saying, so you want us wise philosophers to believe in a crucified Jewish Messiah. Yeah, that's what we need. They don't believe it. Why would you believe it? Because the Holy Spirit has come to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. When the Holy Spirit is sent, the third person of the Trinity, he convicts telling people that their life should be better than it is now 
doesn't convict people, but telling them that they face the wrath of God does if we preach the gospel clearly. The gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ, God the Son, the creator of the universe. We believe the Bible does teach the Trinity. And that John 1, 1 through 18, is about the pre-existent Lagos, the Son, who created the world and came into his world and was rejected, but yet the one sent by God. The proof is the sinless life, virgin birth, sinless life, shed blood once for all, the resurrection, and the appearances to many witnesses, and the fact that people were willing to preach the truth even if they died. Eric talked about that this morning. So, as we see here, it pleased God through the folly, Maria, moron, moronic message, the world thinks, of what we preach, to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. That is the foundation. That is the one foundation, Jesus Christ, upon which the building is being built. And there's no zip code for that building on this earth. It's being built. Everyone who believes is being built upon it. But to those who are the call, verse 24, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, today, turn from seeking self, sin, the world, wisdom, popularity, all the things that we might want. I'm telling you, even if someone were to live 120 years, which is the max, according to Genesis, it's a very short time. When you're 30, you can't believe that very easily. It's getting easier to see all the time. Time goes fast. But we're talking about eternal life. Turn from serving the devil. Turn to God. Believe on him. You are being built on the rock. Trust in him. And that is the message. So whatever else happens, I pray that somehow the essentials of what the church is, what the message is, would be understood so that people don't feel like they have to build some grand institution called the church. Today, if you believed, today turn to Christ, trust in him, and you have the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us the opportunity to look into things that have been revealed in your word. Give us the grace to believe them and the courage to preach them and the fear of you that we do so carefully. I pray for everyone here that you would preserve those who know you and believe in you and cause each one to grow in grace, that some would become converted and trust you And and Lord, as each one is being used, give us the grace to love and care for one another 
and give you the honor and glory for everything you do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.